You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. All right, I'm going to pray as we get started here. Father God, we come before you as always just wanting to hear from you. And so we thank you that you have spoken in your word, and we want to submit ourselves to you. For each person here, I pray, God, that you would speak to us, that we would receive what you have to say, and that we would be changed by it, that we might be more like your son, Jesus, in how we live in wisdom, how we live in love, and that we might show the world more of what you are like. And we pray it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So when I was a kid, we had a coffee table book of Norman Rockwell paintings, one of those big coffee table books, you know, big honking ones. And uh, my dad loved Norman Rockwell. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but my dad loved how Norman Rockwell could kind of capture American culture and how those paintings really just pop off the page, the, the, the life of what's happening in each one, uh, the energy that's happening in each one. And, uh, and I remember very distinctly, read, uh, not reading, but looking through that book and seeing a painting in there that had a little bit of gold writing at the bottom of it. And it said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I thought, oh, that's, that seems like a good ethic to live by. I don't know. I was probably like a teenager, didn't really think much of it, right? And then as an adult, I started reading my Bible for myself as I kind of came to faith uh, as, as an adult. And I started reading through the Gospels, and I started reading through Matthew, and I realized, like, hold on. I came to this verse. Hold on. Jesus said that. That wasn't just a Norman Rockwell painting. That wasn't just like some pithy statement. That's a statement that Jesus made. Do you have that? I I can't remember if we showed that yet. Yeah. So that's the painting, and that's quoting Jesus Christ right there. And yet Jesus isn't really known for making like pithy statements per se. And so what are we to make of his words here in verse 12? Well, all three of these verses uh, come together, the the verses that we're going to be looking at, uh, they all come together, and the latter two verses, verses 13 and 14, which we'll come to later on, they actually help us to see another dimension of what's going on in this verse. And so I want to hopefully progress through each one of these together and begin with verse 12. But the big idea that we're going to see through all of them is Jesus took the hard road for us so we could follow him into life. Jesus took the hard road for us so we could follow him into life. And so let's begin with verse 12. And we'll see how all of these things connect. Verse 12 said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now last week, you guys might remember, for those of you who are with us, Pastor David shared from verses 7 through 11, where Jesus focused on our relationship with God in prayer. And here, Jesus is actually turning, he's shifting his focus from our relationship with God to our relationship with 
our neighbor. So he's, he's going from the vertical to the horizontal. In fact, many translations actually have verse 12, the one that we just read, that one, paired together with the verses from last week for that exact reason. And what we can learn from that is that we must first have our needs met in our Heavenly Father, and when we do, we can live freely toward others. That's the idea. So we're no longer lacking in anything, uh, and, and, and we're no longer expecting then other people to ultimately be our fulfillment. Our ultimate fulfillment is in God, and so then we are then given the grace to fulfill His will for our lives toward others. And His will uh, for us is that we will do to others as we wish that they would do to us. That's a summary that Jesus is making here of the great commandment. You guys remember that one. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's why Jesus ends it with saying, this is the law and the prophets. And the golden rule is a summary of the great commandment because loving God is not just this like nice, ambiguous feeling. It's actually something that's supposed to be transformative. This vertical devotion expresses itself horizontally. You can't say, I love God and I hate people, <laughs> right? Because love for God and love for people go together. The second is a sign of the first. But the problem is, it's really easy for us to read Jesus' words here and to kind of get them all twisted up, get them, get them mixed up, misconstrue what he's saying. He's saying, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And so I'd like to actually highlight the ways in which we can mess this up by saying what Jesus is not saying, okay? So that's how we're going to unpack what he is saying by looking at what he's not saying, so he's first not saying what many other world religions have said. In fact, Confucius and the Stoics and other Greek philosophers and, and even a lot of Jews throughout history have said something that sounds very, very similar to what Jesus says, only it's stated negatively. Something to the effect of, do not do to others what you would not wish that they would do to you. Which sounds pretty good at first, right? It's like, uh, don't do evil to other people. That's a good start, right? <laughs> That's not a bad thing. But there's a world of difference between avoided evil and active good, right? Big, big difference. If we're to truly love our neighbor, doing that active good, it's actually going to call us out of our comfort zone into places that cost us something. Give you an example. Imagine if you were to see someone on the side of the road suffering, kind of like the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You see someone on the side of the road suffering. Would it be good for me not to beat them and rob them? It would, right? <laughs> I think we can all agree that that would be a good thing. But if I am to love them, I'm going to actually need to make a positive difference in their situation, Right? And so Jesus isn't saying, do not do to others what you would not wish that they would do to you. Second thing he's not saying is, do not do, sorry, do unto others as they do unto you. That's not what he's saying. And you could live like this in actually two different ways. Both are essentially treating others as you have been treated. One way that you could do unto others as they do unto you is always waiting on someone else to go first. Like, sure, I'll help them. 
after they help me. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do uh, that good thing to them after they've done that good deed to me, right? This, this shows up in a lot of different ways, but probably one of the most poignant ones is in the business world, right? In, a, in our uh, workplaces, if they scratch my back, I'll scratch theirs. If they you know, put in a good word for me, I'll put in a good word for them. If they help me on a project, I'll help them. And, and so much of even the business world and, and how people network works like this. Do unto others as they do unto you. But the other way that, that this can take shape is in a um, harmful sense. And what I mean is do unto others as they do unto you could look like they punch, I punch. They insult me, I insult them. And what happens when we do this is, is the snowball effect, right? It, it multiplies. What was evil to begin with, that punch, now becomes many punches. What was evil to begin with, that insult, now becomes many insults. And you may even begin to get so used to living in this retaliatory way that as you've lived that way with one person, it begins to spread into all of your relationships. This happens a lot of times in families, right? If there's that dynamic of the, the insult, insult, punch, punch, before you know it, what's happening in that family is, is happening in all of the relationships in the family, and now it's happening in all the relationships of all the individuals from that family. It's being spread to everyone around you, and this vicious cycle continues. So Jesus is not saying do unto others as they do unto you. Third, he's also not saying others must do for you whatever you wish. Now, we could read it that way if we just stop halfway through. Do you notice that? He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you. That's how he started. You might finish that sentence, make them do for you or, or something like that. But that's not what he's saying as much as we might wish that that was what he were saying. Because apart from him changing our hearts, we don't want to love people. That's not our default mode. We don't want uh, to treat people in the way that we would want to be treated. We want everyone else to treat us the way that we want to be treated. We want to be treated like a king. We want to be carried around on one of those portable thrones, you know what I'm talking about, with the four guys on either end, right? And, and people feeding us grapes and, and fanning us. We want that kind of treatment. And now you guys are like, no, I don't want that kind of treatment. I'm going to prove to you that you do, okay? This is, this is some ways that that could look, right? Um, in traffic, okay? Y'all be like, pastor, don't, don't touch my traffic. Don't touch my commute. No, in traffic, do you ride people's tails but expect no one else to do the same to you? Amen? Or... Uh, if you've got roommates or family, do you get off of work and, and you're tired and, and you come home and you think, oh, I've sacrificed so much. I deserve sacrifice from them. Before you know it, you've gone from a heart of service to a heart of entitlement. Now, to be fair, there will be times where other people want to serve us, okay? And there will be times where we need them to, and we need to accept their service. We need to receive from them. But there's a huge difference between receiving 
and expecting, especially when unmet expectations actually lead to more entitlement and more bitterness towards others. Give you another example. If you're married, this shows up in your whole relationship, this, this mentality of, you know, I'm a king and I want everybody to come and serve me. It, show, it can show up in your whole relationship, but especially it can show up in the area of intimacy. Jesus is not saying others must do whatever you wish, and that includes your sexuality. Our sexuality gets all distorted and twisted up through our exposure in this world to things like pornography, the, the message of Hollywood that we're constantly being taught. The message of pornography is, you know, uh, basically everyone exists to serve you. This is about you getting what you want, even if it destroys you in the process. Whereas the Christian view of marriage and the Christian in general and the Christian view of intimacy in specific is it's not about me getting what I want. It's about me serving my spouse so that both of us flourish in the process. We serve one another. We need to be available to one another like Christ and the church united in a beautiful covenantal commitment with one another. So Jesus is not saying others must do to you as you wish. Lastly, Jesus is not saying do unto others what you wish they would do to you, even if it means that that is a bad thing for you. And here's why I really feel like we need to look at this issue. Because if we're honest... We don't always want what's best for us. Amen? I mean, if we did, Taco Bell wouldn't exist, among other things, right? Uh, and it's not just awful food that's the problem. It's also uh, we don't want what's good for us in a lot of different ways, including in our relationships. And so sometimes we might actually want others to leave us alone and let us do whatever we want which isn't good for us. And so Jesus isn't just giving carte blanche, yes, go and do to others whatever you wish that they would do to you, even if that means that it's bad for them or you. No. Even if we want to be treated that way, we're not to be treat, treating others that way. And, and we have to follow Jesus' command, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them ultimately connecting it back to God's ways, not our own. That's why he includes this statement at the end. This is the law and the prophets. This is God's instruction. So do unto others whatever you would have them do unto you as long as it fits within God's instruction. Doing to others what is bad for them, even if you wish that they would do it to you, would actually contradict God's instruction. Now notice what Jesus is doing here with, with the golden rule. Notice what he's doing here. Jesus is showing us what he would later do. Did you catch that? He said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Jesus is showing us what he would go on to do, both in his life but especially in his death, his death for you and for me. What he was doing was he was doing what he wished others would do for him. Jesus said, whoever would come after me must take up his cross daily and follow me. 
Forever would lose his life for my sake will keep it. But for whoever would keep his life will lose it. Jesus did for us what he is asking us to do for others. But Jesus is also doing something else in giving us this command. Jesus is reversing the curse. He's teaching us how to live in a way that undoes the effects of sin, and it actually causes beauty and goodness to pour out into the world through us. Because in Jesus, God is renewing the whole world. He's undoing the curse of sin and death. He's actually healing people. He's saving people. He's forming a new community called the church who now get to act as his agents of renewal. Imagine what it would be like for just a minute if everyone did to others what they wished others would do to them. Imagine what the world would be like. We'd have a warless world, right? We, we wouldn't have what's going on in Ukraine and Russia happening. We wouldn't have uh, the, the horrific atrocities that are being experienced in all kinds of countries. Haiti, Ethiopia, Congo, Sudan, Yemen, Syria, Myanmar. All over the world, there is death and devastation and just horrific things happening that wouldn't be happening if everyone did unto others that they wished, what they wished others would do to them. We'd also have a reconciled world, right? People from every class and country and color and culture would all be coming together in that kind of peace and that kind of unity. We get to experience a glimpse of that in, inside the church. But ultimately, we would have a kingdom of heaven world. It's heaven coming to earth. And it's probably hard for us to imagine how amazing that would be. It's just so foreign. It's so far away from where we are at. And so you might say, well, yeah, that, that all sounds great. Sounds great. If everybody would just do that, if everybody would just do unto others as they would have others do unto them, that would be great, but... It also sounds really hard, because loving people is hard, right? And you might say, well, I thought Jesus was supposed to save me from that. I thought he was supposed to save me from the hard life. I thought he saved me so that I could have the good life. I thought he saved me so that I could go to heaven, and so that in the meantime, while I'm waiting to go there, he would give me those goodies. Isn't that what Pastor David said in his sermon last week? Right? <clears throat> Ask and you shall receive. Obviously, I don't think anybody here took that away from Pastor David's message, that that's, <laughs> that's what he was saying. But if you did, you want to go back and listen to it to clarify. That's not what he said. But Jesus is about to illustrate now in the next two verses that while God does give us good gifts and while God does uh, love us and grant us new life, his plan for our lives also involves adversity. So let's look at these last two verses, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
Those who find it are few. As we've said many times uh, throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's wisdom for the good life. That's what Jesus is giving to us, wisdom for the good life. And in the Jewish tradition of wisdom literature, by the time of Jesus, there was already this well-established uh, concept which Jesus is actually echoing here, and it's the concept of two paths, two paths, wisdom or folly, good or evil, life or death, loving God in his way or loving your own way. There are not many paths, <laughs> there are just two, two paths. And Jesus doesn't give a ton of context for how to know which path is the wide and easy one versus the one that is narrow and hard. He just simply tells us that one leads to destruction and the other one leads to life. But we have to remember that while we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for over a year now, or we started it a year ago anyway, Jesus' audience probably heard all of these teachings all at once. And so they were hearing him talk about the narrow path and the wide path in the context of everything else that he has said so far. So what he's saying now assumes what he's been saying this whole time. And the point of all that is just to say that is what gives us context for what he means. And verse 13 here is, is marking the shift where we're now beginning Jesus' closing arguments for the Sermon on the Mount. He's beginning to sum it all up. And so the way that he's saying is wide and easy are the ways in which he's been uh, warning us against this whole time. And the way that is narrow and hard is the way that he's been calling us toward this whole time for the whole Sermon on the Mount. And so if you're like me and you've forgotten what all of that is, because it's been a lot, I just went back this week, and I wanted to sort of sum it up. And the point of doing this is just so we can go, okay, that's what's easy, and, uh, and that is what is hard. That is what is wide. That is what is narrow. So I, I tried to put these in bullet points. It's so much that you probably can't barely read it, but if you guys need like some binoculars or something, maybe someone has some. But hopefully this is helpful. I mean, you can just listen if you can't read it from where you're at. The wide way is being full of self. The narrow way is being empty of self or poor in spirit, as Jesus described it. The wide way is causing grief to others. The narrow way is mourning. The wide way is arrogance. The narrow way is meekness. Remember, this is all from the Beatitudes up here at the beginning. The wide way is you don't need God. The narrow way is you're hungry and thirsty for God. The wide way is you're vindictive. The narrow way is you're merciful. The wide way is you are evil-hearted. The narrow way is you're pure-hearted. The wide way is you're a conflict starter or also avoider. The narrow way is you're a peacemaker. The, the wide way is you're a persecutor. The narrow way is you're persecuted. The wide way is you're full of anger and hate. The narrow way is you're a reconciler. The wide way is lustful, the narrow way is faithful. The wide way is lying, the narrow way is honest. The wide way is retaliatory, the narrow way is long-suffering. 
The wide way is make enemies and hate enemies. The narrow way is love enemies and turn enemies into neighbors. The wide way is hypocritical. The narrow way is whole. It's whole. And as we look at these, you might be attracted to one or the other. I'm guessing even if you don't know Jesus yet, you're attracted to the narrow way. That just sounds in, in many ways better. But it also sounds hard. And so therefore, we might think, well, this is a bad sales pitch, Jesus. <laughs> you, need to, you need to go like go back to marketing school and learn from all of those guys that what you're supposed to do, Jesus, is if you're trying to build a movement and a following, you've got to promise everybody the good life. And yet... Jesus never promises the easy life. He promises the best life. He really promises the only life because the other path leads to destruction. He says the way is hard that leads to life. And what's interesting is this word way could mean road. So the the road is hard that leads to life. And the word hard could mean affliction. And so Jesus is saying, do you want to find life? Do you want to find life? You're going to have to go down affliction road. Sound good? Everybody on board? (laughs) We spend our whole lives trying to avoid affliction, don't we? What would cause us to want to jump on board with what Jesus is inviting us to? You know, we we spend so much of our time trying to avoid affliction that we might say, I thought God loved us. Why does he allow us to go through pain or difficulty? Why would he want us to go through pain or difficulty? And the answer is, if finding life requires going down affliction road, then it's loving for God to lead us down it. It's the road that leads us to himself. He's drawing us to himself. So rather than ask why a loving God would allow us pain or difficulty, the better question is, why would anyone want anything other than life? Why would you want anything other than life? Why would I want anything other than life? And the answer is, we're fools. That's why. We're sinners. The default mode of the human heart is not wisdom, but folly. We actually choose death. We volunteer for it. And and you might say, well... Yeah, but it's not just Christians who gain wisdom. There are people who don't know God who who find wisdom in this life. And I would say that I would agree with you to an extent, to, to a degree. God in his common grace, that means grace that he gives to all of humanity, does give some wisdom to all people. And so we have wonderful gifts from people who've been able to obtain wisdom, like doctors. They're wisely able to understand the way that the human body works and and to help us and to help us be healed. 
philosophers. Some are wisely able to discern the way in which the world works and the way that life works. Some psychologists are able to discern ways in which the human mind works and the way that our behavior and and our environment, all these things interact with each other. God's granted wisdom to artists and to craftsmen to be able to excel in their trade. In the end, though, that kind of wisdom is limited. It's limited. And in the end, when we don't choose God, we ultimately choose folly. And so the reason that we pursue anything other than life, why we would want anything other than life in God, is that we think that we are wiser than him. We think that we are smarter than him. We think that we don't need him, which is, of course, the the essence of folly, to decide for ourselves what is real, what is right, and what is good. And that is the wide and easy road. For us to decide for ourselves what is real, what is right, and what is good. And this is perhaps the most popular false gospel in America today. For us to decide for ourselves what is real, what is right, and what is good. This is individualistic freedom. Now, what I don't mean is political freedom. So I'm not talking about politics. Set that aside. I'm talking about individualistic freedom. Freedom for you to create a road for yourself. Not realizing, of course, that you're just putting a new pavement down over that easy and wide road that Jesus has already exposed. This is freedom for you to create an identity for yourself. Never mind the fact that you didn't make yourself. God did. And and you didn't make the universe and the way in which he's designed everything to work. And so you shouldn't try and create a world in your own image. You know that song, Let It Go, from Frozen? Shift gears here for a second. (laughs) You guys know that song, everybody? Let it go, let it go. I don't really know any of the words. Sorry, you guys will probably be singing that for the rest of the day, and I apologize in advance. Um, But I hope I don't offend anyone here when I say that I loathe that song with every fiber of my being. I cannot stand it. If you like it, I'm not hating on you, okay? I'm just, I hate the song. And, and if you do like it, you'd like, yeah, but Pastor, isn't, it's just a fun kind of Disney princess song about her coming out with her abilities and, you know, and, and being free with her ice abilities. And I say, it's not. I say it's a philosophical treatise of a false idea of freedom. And yes, I'm completely serious, and no, I'm not out of my mind. Let me show you. Here's just a little snippet of the lyrics. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Sounds like a philosophical treatise to me, doesn't it, to you? (laughs) This is a false idea of freedom because to be truly free 
is to be limited to what you were made for. To be truly free is to be limited to what you were made for. And I'll give you an example. Eli, my son, won a goldfish at a school fair a few weeks ago. And our kids are huge Star Wars fans. And so they named him Obi-Wan Finobi. And, and, and Obi-Wan lives in a tank of water, okay? And you might feel bad for Obi-Wan. You might look at him and get sad and think, well, that's me. He shouldn't be limited to that. Finobi might want to be free. <laughs> he might want to be free. And so you take him out of that tank and you set him on the counter only to find out that that's going to kill him. Right? A fish is not free on land. The limit of that water gives him life. The narrowness, if you will, of that water gives him life. Likewise, a tree doesn't thrive unless its roots are in the ground. And the Bible uses this metaphor many, many times to describe the wise person who finds life in God. You're like a tree planted by streams of water, it says. The narrowness of being planted in God gives you life. It gives you life. And so saying that freedom is doing whatever I want is a lie. It is a blatant lie. It's a false gospel. It's a frozen gospel. <laughs> okay? It's actually also, it's a Burger King gospel. Right? Your way right away. Yeah? And that's one thing to say that about a burger. But when that phrase starts seeping into the cracks and crevices of your life, and we live in a consumeristic culture that's all around us, your way right away, you can really begin living like that. And when you do, it actually leads you away from God. And in the end, it destroys you. It's that wide and easy way that leads to destruction. And so only a fool would choose that road. Only a fool would choose that road. But here's the flip side. Wisdom isn't easy. <laughs> the way is hard that leads to life. Following Jesus is hard. If you've been a Christian for 30 seconds, you know that already. You don't need me to tell you. You really have to want to get in through that narrow gate. It's just so narrow. You can't slide on through, you know, float your way through. And yet, it's also the weightiest, most important pursuit you can make in your whole life. Literally, it's a matter of life or death. Eternal life or eternal death. In 1933, a German pastor said, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. Can you believe that? And that's a pretty good example of what the environment in Germany was like at that time. A large portion of the church in Germany had completely switched allegiances from Christ to chancellor, from Christ to country. 
And the church had lost her way, straying so far from the teachings of Jesus. They had, they had strayed so far, in fact, that they had gone from the hard road to the easy road. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he hadn't lost his way. He hadn't changed allegiances. He hadn't changed roads. You guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. You know he's hardcore, right? He, is hard, he was hardcore. And he spent decades seeking to try and keep the church faithful to Jesus and not the things of the world, including speaking out against Hitler and the Nazi party. And he, he lived this out in every way. He rebuked the church leaders and congregants for their unfaithfulness. He lived in this loving community with other believers, and he made disciples for Jesus' kingdom, not a political one. And eventually, he was even one of the people who risked his life by participating in a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. You guys might know that. And, and they went through with that attempt. Sadly, Hitler was on the other side of the room when the bomb went off, and he escaped with minor injuries. And as a result of that failed plot, Bonhoeffer and those with him were imprisoned. And eventually, one month before the end of World War II, he was hanged. In the book, 131 Christians Everyone Should Know, it says this. A camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's hanging described the scene. The prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial were read out to them. Through the half-open door in one, room, in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. And you know, it wasn't a coincidence that... Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life went this way. He didn't just sort of float his way along. It wasn't a coincidence that this is the way in which he died. This is the, at the very heart of what he taught. This is the logical conclusion of what he believed. One of his most famous quotes is, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now Bonhoeffer didn't, uh, in that, when he said that, he wasn't thinking about physical death. For a small few of us, perhaps, we may have to die for Jesus at some point, physically. But Bonhoeffer was really talking about discipleship and its cost. He was talking about the narrowness and the difficulty of following after Jesus. And Christian, if you enter in through the narrow gate, you will walk a hard road. You will. You will experience resistance 
for embracing kingdom values in this life. Resistance from within, for sure, and resistance from without. And when you do, you will be tempted to doubt the wisdom of Jesus. You'll begin to wonder, is he really as wise as I once thought he was? Because this ain't working. You'll be tempted to doubt whether he's worth it. You'll be tempted to doubt whether valuing what he values actually works. And when you do, you need to remember there's something greater going on in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has begun something that is turning the world on its head. And the resistance you're feeling is being a part of that process. And so you've got to remember that you will one day experience the fullness of the joy that he has promised. But in the meantime, you will face hardship. For those of you who are on the narrow path, who who do know Jesus, who have placed your faith and trust in him, where are you facing adversity today? Where are you facing that kind of hardship Resistance. Where are you standing from your vantage point on the narrow path and looking over at that easy, wide road and going, man, that looks good? Where are you longing for a different path? If that's you, I want to encourage you to embrace the life that you have found the hard way. Embrace the life that you have found in Jesus. Remember who you're following. Remember what he's done for you. For those of you who don't know Jesus, who are on that easy, wide road, you may have been thinking this whole time, it's not that easy. (laughs) You may have been thinking this whole time, I'm still suffering. And to an extent, I would agree with you. You will suffer in this life, whether you're on the easy road or the hard road. You will suffer as a result of your sin. And when you do, friend who doesn't know God, when you do, you need to know that that suffering you're experiencing is God calling you back to himself. He wants to offer you forgiveness. He wants you to come to him in need. You also suffer sometimes as a result of other people's sin against you. And if that is you, friend, know that God is calling you back to himself so that he can heal you, not just forgive you. Sometimes you suffer just because you're living in a fallen world. And so you experience how everything is falling apart, death, disease, loss, And friend, when you face these things, even though you're on that wide and easy way, you need to know God is using all of this to draw your attention to himself so you can find life. Get off that wide road and place your trust in Jesus today. See, ultimately, this narrow gate that Jesus has described 
is actually Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. No one can know God apart from Jesus. And faith in him leads to that kind of wisdom that he's portraying for us in the Sermon on the Mount. We open up wisdom for life when we enter in through the narrow gate. That life is the gift that he freely gives to all of us who believe. And though this gift that he offers us today is free, it's also the most costly gift imaginable. Costly because Jesus gave up his infinitely valuable life so that we might have life. As I said earlier, Jesus is the living golden rule, right? It's not only a matter of what he was teaching us so that we should treat each other that way. It's much, much more than that. It's actually about him. Because Jesus did what he wished others would do for him. He did for humanity what he wished humanity would do for him while we did whatever we wished with him. And he did it so that we could follow in his footsteps. He gave his life for us, his death for us, his rising for us, his ruling over us, and his promise that he will return for us. And so we enter the narrow gate through Jesus, and then we walk the narrow way with Jesus. The big idea, Jesus took the hard road for us so we could follow him into life. And I've given you a few community group questions here, three questions. Have you heard the golden rule before? Are you familiar with it? Was it something you'd ever learned like I did with the Norman Rockwell painting? Uh, if you always lived by it, what would change? Two other questions. When you hear Jesus' invitation for the narrow and hard road, what do you find attractive about it? And when you hear it, what do you find unsettling about it? Let's pray and let's respond to God together. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to walk this road ahead of us. Jesus, thank you for the confidence that we have that as we follow you, we don't just follow you into death. We don't just follow you into suffering, but we follow you into resurrection life. And so, Jesus, would you encourage us today, those of us who are suffering, those of us who are experiencing resistance or hardship or we're just weary would you strengthen us today? God, for those who don't know you, would you reveal yourself to them right now? And would you provide new life to them in exchange for their sin? And for all of us, as we respond to you, God, we pray that you would be actively at work through your spirit in this room right now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.